0: every year the Oxford English Dictionary, which is like the grand master of English dictionaries has been since 1884, every year they come up with their word of the year, the most popular word in contemporary culture. Well, a year ago, the word of the year was selfie. Now, we we all know what a selfie is, right? That self-portrait that we take with our our smartphone. I was uh, I was reading an article on selfies the other day. I mean, we've all taken a selfie or two or three or four thousand, right? And this article said the interesting thing about selfies is that most often we're taking a selfie to show people where we are. So here I am at the Bears game or here I am at a friend's party. Here I am at the Eiffel Tower in Paris. But, but the strange thing is, though, though we intend to show people where we are because my smartphone is just a couple of feet from my face, what do they see? <laughs> they see me. I'm in the center of the picture. I crowd out everything else. Now, I want to use that as an analogy to introduce today's topic. We're going to be studying in God's Word the topic of self-absorption. Self-absorption is me at the center of the picture. It's me crowding out everybody else from my life. And and the irony about self-absorption is that the more I'm all about me, the more I'm all about pursuing my own happiness, the less joy, true joy, I really experience. So we're in the third week of a six-part holiday series called Killjoy. We are exposing those attitudes and behaviors that rob us of true happiness. So a couple of weeks ago when we began the series, we looked at discontent. Last weekend, we looked at guilt. Today, we're looking at self-absorption, self-absorption. You know, I'm stuck on myself. We all have this, this same tendency. My v- world tends to revolve around myself. I tend to treat other people like they're minor actors, supporting actors in the grand drama of my life. And so today we're going to take a look at, at what it means to break free from self-absorption. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and get your outline from your program so that you could jot down what God has brought you here to teach you you don't need to fill it out if this is not a problem for you in which case you're living in denial all right When we talked about freedom from discontent a couple of weeks ago, we we looked at at another passage in Philippians, Philippians chapter four, and at that time I gave you some background to this epistle, this New Testament epistle. I mean, this is the most helpful book in the Bible to go to if you want to learn about joy, because joy is the theme of Philippians. Sixteen times in the book of Philippians, four short chapters, sixteen times Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the word joy or rejoice. And what's so interesting about that is that Paul is writing the epistle from prison. He's in jail for preaching the good news about Jesus. But he's not wringing his hands asking, why did you allow this to happen to me, God? He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. Paul is full of joy. And today we're going to learn that a major reason for Paul's joy is that he resisted this temptation of self-absorption and instead Paul practiced others' centeredness. So how do we move from self-absorption to others' centeredness? Paul teaches us in, in the book of Philippians, it has something to do with our mindset. It has something to do with the way we think about things. In fact, there's a, a verb in the original Greek, the verb is phroneo. Phroneo, that means to think or to consider, to perceive, to set your mind on something. Paul uses phroneo ten times in the short, short epistle. You know, Paul is is trying to help us see that it's it's our thinking that impacts our attitudes and corresponding behaviors. So what sort of thinking will set us free from self-absorption? Three think directives today. Here's number one. Got to think team. Okay, write that down. Think team. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I told you as we were in Philippians that the Apostle Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters. Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And those 13 letters, for the most part, are intended to address problems in the lives of the readers. I said, by way of contrast, Philippians is a different kind of epistle. It's a very upbeat epistle. Not so much to address problems in readers' lives as it is to say thank you, because the Philippians had just sent Paul a very generous financial gift. So this is a thank you note. However, I may have overstated things a bit when I said that Paul isn't addressing any problem in, in Philippians because the fact of the matter is there is a problem that he's addressing. Okay, It's very subtle. You've got to read between the lines a little bit. And it's not a big problem, but the reason he's writing is to keep it from becoming a big problem. He, he wants to nip it in the bud. What is, what is the problem that Paul addresses? Well, you know, in a phrase, it's the, the Philippians... Some of them weren't, weren't getting along with each other. And so Paul writes this epistle with an emphasis on unity, on getting along, on oneness, on thinking team. So if your Bible is open in front of you, and this is why it's good to bring your own Bible, because I'm going to just flip through some miscellaneous verses here to give you a feel for you know, this problem that he is addressing in a very subtle way. Uh, first instance I see is in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know, listen, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This emphasis upon oneness, because evidently they weren't playing as a team. Go down to chapter two, verse 14. This is pretty obvious. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why would he say this? Unless there was some grumbling and arguing going on. Drop down to verse 21. He says, everyone looks out for their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make for good teamness. Go over to chapter 3, verse 4. Middle of verse 4. Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Obviously, there's there's some boasting going on in Philippi. Paul says, you want to brag? I could play that game. It's stupid, but I'll beat you at it. Go down to chapter 4, verse 2, one of my favorite verses here. He says, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, hey, would you help these two women get along? How would you like to be Euodia or Syntyche? You know, good news is your name's going in the Bible. You're going to be remembered for centuries, immortalized. Bad news is you're going to be remembered as a person who couldn't get along with a friend. Okay, So so this is what what Paul is is addressing here in the book of Philippians. The Philippians weren't operating as a team. People were playing for themselves. There was some serious self-absorption going on. You know, one of my favorite sports coaches of all time, and I hesitate to say this because I know there are probably a few Chicago Bulls fans in the audience, but one of my favorite sports coaches is Pat Riley. And years ago, I read a a book on leadership by Pat in which he made a case for teamness, the importance of playing together as as a team. And when Riley first came to the L.A. Lakers in the early 1980s, he said they were very stagnant as a team, and he diagnosed their problem as the disease of me. He's talking about self-absorption, the disease of me. And he said the picture began to change a bit when in 1979 their first round draft pick was this 19-year-old point guard by the name of Magic Johnson, Magic Johnson, and he was the consummate team player. And this showed in the very first game he played. The Lakers won the game in the final seconds, Skyhook, one of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Uh, patented skyhooks from 20 feet out. They win at the buzzer. And Riley describes what happened next. He says, completely expressionless, Kareem turned and headed for the shower. It was the way Kareem enjoyed winning. But before he could reach the far end of the court, magic came bounding over. He hurled himself into the center's arms, hugged him with all his exuberant might, and poured praise on his captain. Can't you just imagine this? Kareem couldn't believe what was going on. This was just the first night of an 82-game, nine-month stretch. Didn't this rookie have any sense of cool? Riley says, no, he didn't. (laughs) Well, over the course of the next several seasons, you know, Magic continued to do this, pour praise on his teammates and draw out their best play. And finally one day, Riley asked Magic the question. He said, how come you're such a selfless player? Magic said, well, that happened in my, in my youth when I was a young boy playing basketball in a youth league in East Lansing, Michigan. The coach took me aside one day, and he said, Magic, you're the biggest guy on the team. You're, you're our best shooter. I want you to shoot the ball whenever you get it. So whenever Magic got the ball, he shot it, and he made baskets, and his team won games. And he'd look around at his teammates with that big cheesy grin of his, expecting it to be returned. And instead, he saw misery on their faces. Nobody was having a good time. And he realized the coach's strategy was winning games. But there was no joy on the court. And he decided to change things out. And he started drawing defenders toward himself and then passing the ball to his teammates, letting them shoot. And they still won games. But now everybody was having a good time doing it. And it transformed the culture of that youth league team. And years later, that same approach transformed the culture of the L.A. Lakers. So much so that in the 1980s, they won five titles. They went to three championship series. And they had a good time. They had a good time doing it. Self-absorption is a killjoy. we got to learn how to think team. So let's go back to Philippians. We've already looked at several miscellaneous verses in this epistle. But now I want to go to, to today's text It begins at Philippians 2, verse 1. Let me read the first two verses of Philippians 2 to you because these verses scream team. Okay, verse 1 of Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy... See, there's one of those joy words. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You see all the oneness, all the team expressions in these two verses. Just begin at verse 1. Bible scholars tell us that there are four important phrases in this verse. And each of, of the phrases, now listen, it's made up of two nouns, no verbs. So if you read this in the original Greek, it would sound very choppy. In fact, when the English translators, when they translated this into English, they added verbs to kind of smooth things out. If you were reading this in the original Greek, here's what verse 1 says. If any encouragement, Christ. If any comfort, love. If any sharing, spirit. If any tenderness, compassion. You say, wow, that is choppy. Paul wasn't a very good writer, was he? he He wasn't trying to win an essay contest. What Paul's doing here, he's just just throwing out words that have to do with team. He says, you want to build a team? I'll give you the ingredients. Here here are the ingredients for team. It's encouragement, Christ, comfort, love, sharing, spirit, tenderness, compassion. Mix it together, you get team. Let, let, Let me use an analogy here, okay? I love to go to the Art Institute, the Art Museum in Chicago, even though I don't know what I'm looking at. All right, But I make a beeline for the impressionistic paintings. I just, You go up the main staircase, and there they are right in front of you. You ever looked closely at a Monet, Claude Monet, one of his paintings? What you'll see if you look closely, you'll see a lot of dabs of color. Just dab, 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 lots of dabs of color. But you've got to step back to see what it is. You step back, and it's this beautiful landscape. So what Paul is doing in verse 1 here, he's go dab, 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 dab. Lots of dabs of color. And then you step back and what do you see? You see this picture of a team. You get it? Good. Yeah, I was afraid I lost some of you the minute I said art. All right? Okay. So ver- verse 2 continues to give us dabs of color. Look at all the team expressions in verse 2. If you've got your own Bible, you want to underline these. Like-minded, same love. One in spirit, one mind, Paul is inspiring us to think team. Think team. You know, let's do that right now, okay? I want you to think of some of the groups, some of the people groups that you're part of. Okay, so you got your family, you got your circle of friends, you got people you work with, you got your neighborhood if you're in a community group here at Christ Community Church, if you're a high school student in a house group, I want you to think of people groups that you participate in. Do you think of these groups strictly in terms of what they contribute to your life, or do you think of them as teams whose teamness you want to contribute to, much like Magic Johnson and the LA Lakers? What if you brought to these groups some of the team characteristics we've just been looking at in the opening verses of Philippians 2? What if, for example, what if you started thinking of your, of your family as a team? How would that change the way you approach dinner table conversations? You know, we're, we're a team around this table. How would it approach the way that you do household chores? We're, we're a team. Or the way that you make family financial decisions. Or, you know, the way you choose what to watch on TV. We're a team. We're a team. See, there's a huge difference between self-absorbed thinking and team thinking. What if you started thinking of your workplace as a team when you went to work This week, you you know, you were thinking to yourself, team, this is not just about getting my job done. This is about helping the team here accomplish its goals. What if you looked at your neighborhood as a team? Now, Truth be known, most of us would have to admit we don't even know most of our neighborhood teammates, do we? I was talking to a guy at Christ Community Church just a, a couple of weeks ago. And he said sometime back he was speaking with one of his neighbors, a fellow Christ follower, and the two admitted to each other, you know, we don't know too many people on this block. And and our guess is, he said, our guess is that most of the people on the block don't know each other. And so we looked at each other and we said, why don't we do something about this? You know, why don't we be the ones who like, throw the block party, and so that's what they've been doing for the past couple of years. Once or twice a year, they throw a block party. Every month, he puts something on the calendar for the neighborhood. It may be a bunco night at somebody's house. It may be collecting canned goods for the local food pantry. Every month, there's something for the neighborhood. Not everybody shows up, but always some neighbors come, and this guy's getting a reputation for being the glue in the neighborhood. What if you became known as the glue in your neighborhood? What if you became the one known as the glue in your workplace or the glue among your friends? My guess is you'd you'd experience a whole lot of joy. Number two, you want to break the pattern of self-absorption and experience joy? Think others' interests. Others' interests. We have all heard of the Salvation Army. Uh, This is the season when we see the bell ringers on the street corners or outside of stores. We know their reputation. The Salvation Army cares about people's needs, physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Well, years ago, the Salvation Army used to celebrate once a year. All of its staff from around the country would get together in one central location on Christmas Eve... So all their work has been completed and they would celebrate. And this is the time when their commander-in-chief, General Booth, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he would give a rousing speech to the troops, you know, to inspire them. Well, in 1910, uh, William Booth was reaching the end of his life, and he was too weak to go to the annual celebration. But he sent his speech in the form of a telegram. And he asked that it be read at the night, at the end of the party that night. So at the end of the party, the moderator for the meeting gathered the hundreds of delegates from around the country and said, We have a message from General Booth. And he stood up, opened the telegram, discovered it was one word. And so he read it out with a booming voice Others. That was it. it was others. You know, if Paul were to give us one word in the next couple of verses of Philippians, verses three and four, it would be the word others. Let me read verses 3 and 4 to you, and I want you to note at the beginning of verse 3, he actually begins by exposing some anti-others attitudes, okay? Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others, others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others, Okay, what are the two anti-others attitudes that Paul warns us against in the opening line of verse 3? What's the first one? Call it out. All campuses. Selfish ambition. They did a lousy job here in St. Charles. Did they do okay in, in DeKalb? What's the second one? Vain conceit. We nailed it. Okay. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Interestingly, these two expressions are rather rare in Scripture in the New Testament. But they're fairly commonplace in ancient Greek literature. Uh, Aristotle, for example, the, the, the Greek philosopher, he wrote a book on politics in which he exposes the selfish ambition of many people who run for political office. He said, Some of these people are just, you know, they're just out to beat their opponents, they're just out to win. They're, they're competitive in the, the worst sense of that word. Selfish ambition. It will keep us from thinking others' interests. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, My father-in-law is 93 years old, and he still lives in his own home, and every week he plays bridge with three buddies. Okay, every once in a while one of the guys will die, and then they'll replace him with somebody, and the bridge game (laughs) continues. Usually doesn't happen while they're playing, you, you understand. Okay, but when I say that he plays with three buddies, I use the term buddies very loosely because the fact of the matter is these guys are so competitive, when they show up, all they're thinking about is winning. So my father-in-law was describing this to us recently. He said the guys walk in the door, they don't say a word, they sit down at the card table, they shuffle the deck, they deal it out, and we begin to play, and he said occasionally, Because we all want to win, arguments ensue. In fact, just recently he said a couple of guys sprang to their feet ready to duke it out with each other. (laughs) A couple of 90-year-old guys ready to duke it out over a game of bridge. And Sue says to her dad, Well, you know, Dad, you can't, you know, you can't let this continue. Now, her dad has recently become a Christ follower, which is just an amazing thing, you know, at this age of life, surrendering to Christ. And she said, you know, let's change this out. Why don't you ask Vicki, your housekeeper, to fix lunch for the guys? Invite the guys to come an hour early and then just talk, ask questions, get to know each other. So dad says, good, he'll try that. So we call him in a week. Dad, how did it go? He said, fabulous. He said, Especially Vicky's upside down pineapple cake. Oh, whoa, He said, but we talked to each other, and the guys loved it, and the guys are saying, when can we do that again? See, selfish ambition blinds us to others' interests. If if I go through my day focused on what a win looks like for me, focused on my agenda, my goals, my deadlines for the day, I will be oblivious to the concerns of other people. So go back to Philippians chapter 2. What is Paul's antidote to selfish ambition and vain conceit? What virtue does he pr- promote in the second half of the verse? Say it with gusto. What is it? Humility. Humility. Verse 3. In humility, value others' interests above yourselves. Humility. Now, a few moments ago, I said to you that selfish ambition, vain conceit are rather rare in the New Testament but commonplace in ancient Greek literature. Just the opposite is true of this humility that Paul talks about now. It's big in the Bible, and it's rather rare in Greek literature. When it's spoken of, it's looked at with disdain. Humility is equated with humiliation. Humility is for slaves and for people who want to be treated like doormats. Not so in the Bible. The Bible prizes humility. Listen to these scriptures. God saves the humble, but brings low those whose eyes are haughty. Psalm 18, verse 27. God lives in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, verse 12 clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. If you want to find yourself on the opposite side of the line of scrimmage as God, just be proud. Paul said, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humility is a very important virtue in God's book. But what does genuine humility look like? Maybe the ancient Greeks rejected humility because they had a false picture of it. Maybe they thought of humility, as many of us do, as, well, humility is putting yourself down, right? Humility is, is saying, well, I'm a nobody. My abilities aren't that great. I don't have anything to contribute. I'm just a worm. Is that genuine humility? Let, let, let me make a very important distinction here. And this. What I'm about to say, this is worth the price of admission today, all right? So you want to jot this down. Humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. Did you get that? Humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He's one of my favorite writers. He's the author of best-selling books, New York Times bestsellers. He's an insightful theologian. I read one of his books this past year knowing that I was going to be preaching this sermon today. And the the book's title is The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. In the first part of Keller's book, he documents the fact that the self-esteem movement that was so popular for years has proven to be a dismal failure. Experts tried to convince us that the the reason people don't succeed, the reason people misbehave, the reason people get addicted to stuff, the reason people hurt other people is they have too low a self-esteem. You heard this before. And so so we have been been encouraged to develop a high self-esteem. We need to focus, we're told, on how wonderful we are and how great our achievements are and, and how important the things we want in life are. Well, according to Keller, studies have now shown that people with too high a self-esteem are more dangerous to themselves and others than people with too low a self-esteem. And so Keller concludes in his book, he's, he said, you know, the, the answer here is not to think of yourself with, with a high self-esteem or think of yourself with a low self-esteem. The, 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 the answer is to think of yourself less. What a brilliant idea. Where does Keller get that? How about right out of Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4? You know, Paul tells us in these verses to think of ourselves less, and then he tells us how to do it. How do you think of yourself less? He said it's by thinking of others' interests more. Go back to verse 3. Last line in humi- humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests. Okay, think of yourselves less that each of you, but each of you to the interests of others. Think of others' interests more. Let's get real practical here. Okay, let's talk about a few venues in which you can can apply what we're we're learning here about uh, thinking of yourself less and others' interests more. One of the venues is in daily conversation. Okay, What do you like to talk about what are your interests? I mean, bring them to mind right now. okay? For some of you, it's politics. Uh, for others of you, it's the latest cute thing that your two-year-old said. right? Or do you like to talk about the bears? Or about clothes? Or about how stressful things are at work? Is that what you gravitate to talking about? Or uh, where you went on your last family vacation? Okay, Those are your interests interests. That's why you talk about them. What about the interests of other people that you hang out with? What about the interests of your family members? What about the interests of people at work? The interests of your best friend? Do you know what they are? I'm not not talking about superficial interests, the kinds of things people post on their Facebook page. You, you ever ask the question, you know, so what makes you really happy? Or what keeps you awake at night? Or where are you at spiritually these days? One of my favorite Old Testament Proverbs is Proverbs 20, verse 5. Let me read it to you. The writer of Proverbs says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. I love this this metaphor. You, You follow the word picture here? The writer of Proverbs says, People are like a deep well. Okay, and, and and to get water out of that well, you're gonna need a bucket. What what's the bucket? It's asking good questions so you can draw them out. Do you ask good questions or do you do all the talking? I was taking my dad out for, for breakfast a week ago to celebrate his 90th birthday. Okay, just just the two of us. Big milestone. And I thought to myself, I don't wanna regret afterward that I you know, I wasted the opportunity to ask him some great questions. So I put together questions ahead of time. And then we we got together over the breakfast table and a stack of pancakes. And I, you know, I asked things like, what are the best decisions you've made in 90 years? Okay, what would you change about your life if you could change something? Okay, my dad grew up in India. So I asked him, what what was the best part of growing up in India? What was the worst part of growing up in India? I asked him, who's your favorite child? You know, because I knew I was paying for breakfast. It was, you (laughs) know, slam done. It's just a wonderful time together, drawing him out. What if we did this in conversations, intentionally, when we're driving in the car with family members or friends, when you're sitting on the sidelines of your daughter's basketball game with other parents, okay, when you're hanging out at a party, when you're in a business lunch with a potential client, Asking some questions that draw out the other person. What are his or her interests? D- daily conversations, they're a big venue in which to think others' interests. L- let me touch on three or four uh, other venues for putting this into practice. What about decision-making? Okay, Are you a, a my way or the highway sort of person when you make decisions? You kind of make decisions for others? Or do you include, do you seek out their interests? You know, whether this is a a, a business decision or this is a family decision or, goodness, this is a what should we put, what topping should we put on the pizza decision. Do, Do you solicit others' interests or do you make the decisions for them based on your interests? Well, here's another venue. Recognition. You know, when I stop to think about it, I, you know, I sometimes get a, in a funky mood when I feel like I'm not being recognized for my contribution. I'm not being thanked. I'm not being praised by the, you know, I did this and this and this and this for them, and they didn't say thank you. And I wonder how many people in my life every day are just waiting for somebody to recognize what they've done. Waiting to, someone just, maybe me to say thank you. See, I'm waiting for my thank you. Am I interested in, in their thank you? Or I'll throw out one more venue. And again, this is just meant to think, get us thinking in terms of others' interests. What about church? When you came to church today, whose interests did you have at heart? Now, I'm not going to guilt trip you because I I hope you came with some personal interests. I hope you came intending to get something out of this service for yourself. But what about others' interests? What about the interest of the person sitting next to you or two seats down right now at Blackberry Creek, Bartlett, St. Charles, DeKalb? Maybe, Maybe that person's new to Christ Community Church and their interest is just getting to know somebody, just having somebody welcome them. Tell them a little bit about the church. Will will you meet that interest in somebody else's life? Not right now, but before you leave the auditorium you're seated in. What about the interest of the person you handed your child off to at Kids World? Now, I know what your interest is. Your interest is that their number won't go up on the screen, right? So you won't have to leave the service in front of everybody else. But what about the interest of the person, the volunteer you handed your child to? I'll tell you what one of their interests are. Their interest is that you would volunteer to serve in kids' world sometime. That's what their interest is, one of them. Okay. Do we leave Christ Community Church or any church we attend kind of filling out the report card? You know, how good a job was done in meeting our own interests? Our style of music, you know, whether the topic of the sermon connected and... Say, Friends, if we came to church intent on meeting others' interests, what a difference it would make in our sense of community. What a warm, loving place we'd become known as. What joy, what joy we we would experience. How to overcome self-absorption. Number one, think team. Number two, think others' interests. Number three, think serving opportunities. I want you to go back to Philippians 2. Paul is about to move from exhortation to illustration. Okay, he's been exhorting us. He's been challenging us. And now he's going to throw out an illustration, an example of what freedom from self-absorption looks like. And he chooses, this is really startling when you stop to think about it. He chooses as his role model the most exalted person in the universe. He chooses Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that's startling, startling is because superstars aren't typically known for thinking team or thinking others interests or thinking serving opportunities, but Jesus did. He's a a role model when it comes to freedom from self-absorption. Begin at verse 5. Paul says, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's a role model, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Another version says, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Stop there. These are amazing verses. In fact, some Bible scholars say that Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 are probably the lyrics of an original worship song sung in the early church. Which is why in your Bible, if you've got your own Bible in front of you, it's it's laid out here on the page to look like a poem. It's because these are the lyrics of a song, probably. There are so many things we could draw out of this passage about Jesus, but the the only thing I want to draw your attention to right now is that Jesus, although he was in very nature God, was willing to become one of us. Why? So he could serve us. Circle that word servant in verse 7. And how did Jesus serve us? Well, in the lowliest, most painful most sacrificial way possible, he gave his life for us on the cross. Our sins deserve the death penalty. If, if that sounds harsh to your ears, let me just remind you that every day we defy God. We, we go our own way. We, we turn our nose up at the giver of life. And so scripture says we deserve to die, but Jesus came to earth to die our death. And by giving his life in payment for our sins upon the cross, he is now able to offer us, if we'll surrender our lives to him, life, real life in return. The consummate servant. We're going to be celebrating this in communion in just a few moments. I mean, this passage blows me away every time I read it. I mean, verse 5 begins with, with Jesus in heaven. And what's he thinking? Is he he thinking, look at me, I'm the Son of God? No, Paul says he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to. You know, that would be self absorption. Jesus is thinking, look at lost humanity. They're condemned to death, they need a Savior. I can be their Savior, I can serve them. But this passage is more than just a good worship song and praise of Jesus. This passage is also a challenge to us to break free from self-absorption and to follow Jesus' example of serving others. Look again at how it's introduced in verse 5. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Please observe. Paul doesn't say, you need to do the same thing Jesus did. You need to die on the cross for other people. You couldn't do that. But he is saying, you could have the same mindset that took Jesus to the cross. You could think, how can I serve others as you go through the course of every day? What if you thought like Jesus? Serving opportunities. Let me tell you a quick story about a guy who does this. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. In fact, let me invite the worship teams at the four campuses just to come out on stage as I'm telling this story and get ready for a time of communion together. Scott is a, an attender at our south campus in Blackberry Creek. He also happens to be the assistant principal at a local school. And he's had problem with uh, two seventh grade boys, twin brothers, discipline problems. And so just recently he had to call in their mom, and he wasn't looking forward to it because he's gone toe-to-toe with her before, and she's a single mom. And it's, you know, it's challenging to raise two seventh grade boys on your own, especially if they're overly rambunctious. So he knew it could get ugly. It had gotten tense in the past. And sure enough, he's in the middle of meeting with her, and it's gone down a wrong road. Now, if Scott had been self-absorbed, he would have been thinking, maybe even said at this point, hey, lady, I'm the assistant principal, okay? I lay down the law in this school. So your your sons need to respect my authority. But Scott wasn't thinking in self-absorbed terms. In fact, he was kind of asking God's spirit, where do I go in this conversation? And he felt prompted to do something rather strange. He looked at the lady and he said, I know this is going to come out of left field, but I'm wondering, I occasionally drive by your house and I can't help noticing that your fence is falling down. And he said, every second Saturday at my church, we send groups out into the community to serve people. And I'm just wondering, could I come by with a group of guys and can we fix your fence? What do you think she thought? You know, immediately, like, what's behind this, right? A little suspicion. So it went back and forth until finally she relented and she said, okay. And they came by and they fixed her fence. And on subsequent Saturdays, they went back and they did household chore after household chore for this single mom. And it completely changed her demeanor. And, and what's more, it changed the demeanor of her two seventh grade boys. They started respecting Scott, the assistant principal, as well as others. And Scott says he heard recently that the family started going to a church in their neighborhood. See? Think serving opportunities. That's how you break the stranglehold of self-absorption in your life. That's how you experience real joy. Think serving opportunities. At, at, at home, that means not waiting for someone to clear your plate from the dinner table and wash the dishes. It means you start clearing plates. It means at work, you, you, you don't show up and say all day long, Well, that's not my job. That's not my job. That's, it means you look around to see who's overwhelmed and you, you serve them. It means a church. You know, we got two big outreach events coming up. Christmas concert this coming weekend, and then Christmas Eve services. You look at it not strictly in terms of, this is a great entertainment moment in the life of my family at Christmas time. Instead, you're thinking, who needs this? Who, who needs this outreach? Who needs the good news that's going to be shared in this concert? Who can I bring with me? In fact, at Christmas Eve, you're thinking, I'm not going to come to one, I'm going to come to two, so I can serve at one. Maybe holding babies in the nursery. This is the second shout-out for Kids World in one sermon. You could tell I'm getting paid by children's ministry, right? Let me tell you something interesting about children's ministry. We have 924 volunteers serving at our four campuses, serving children. 924. But they tell me we got 107 more spots we could fill. Maybe that's you. Serving. I'll bet it would make your Christmas celebration much more joyful if you thought, not strictly in terms of, you know, what will this do for me, but what can I do for others? Self absorption is a killjoy, so think team. Think others' interests. Think serving opportunities. And most important of all, as we're about to do, think Jesus. Thank Jesus, not just as your savior, but as your role model. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to close this sermon time in prayer, and then I'm going to ask the campus pastors at each of the other campuses to introduce communion. Uh, just a little focus on our Advent wreath. This is the second weekend of, of Advent, and then segue into a time of communion. Lord God, thank you for your Son. Jesus, thank you for coming as the perfect example of what it means to be free from self absorption, to be others centered. I want to pray that even as we go through this time of communion, as we hold in our hands the bread and the cup, symbolic of your broken body shed blood on the cross. It would be a time of doing business with you, of repenting of our self-absorption and asking for your help in becoming others-centered. We pray in your name. Amen.